0: Our text today is found in 1 John chapter 5, if you want to turn there to the very last verse of the book, 1 John 5, verse number 21. 1 John 5, 21, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the last verse of 1 John which, by the way, is an epistle that we began to study at the end of last year, and we finished up at the beginning of February, right a month before the pandemic hit. The choice of this text will, I hope, become clear as we go along. Bob Dylan and his album, Oh Mercy, which was 31 years ago, 1989, the first cut was entitled Political World, and in typical Dylan fashion has 11 verses, Living when and where we do, it does seem that we live in a political world. It's the beginning, it's the first line of every verse, we live in a political world. We have been in a seemingly endless election cycle, which may or may not end soon. Many Christians find themselves on opposite sides of different issues. And if in fact we are followers of Jesus, should we not be on the same page? I don't think that the answer is, in fact, uniformity, but rather unity. We may continue to disagree, but there are certain important realities that should be seen as a backdrop to our decisions and our choices. One could argue that there are a number of options that, ch- that Christians have chosen over the, I was going to say decades, but perhaps over the centuries. The first is to see politics as an intrinsically secular pursuit. Um, So they would argue that the Christian faith has little or nothing to say about politics whatsoever. They would argue that politics is a secular matter and that the religious beliefs should be separated or segregated from any such thing. If their faith touches on it at all, it's to paint individual politicians as virtuous or not virtuous, but uh, otherwise they would say, no, politics is not for us. I think we should reject this outright It underestimates the all-encompassing Claim of our faith As a person put it In the early part of the 20th century There is not a square inch in the whole Domain of our human existence Over which Christ Who is sovereign overall, does not cry Mine In other words Every part of our life belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and By the way who was the individual who said that Uh, It's a Dutchman named Abraham Kuyper. His accomplishments are staggering, at least in my opinion. He edited two newspapers. One was published weekly, the other one uh, daily. He authored over 20,000 newspaper articles, scores of pamphlets, numerous multi-volume treatises. He founded a university, the Free University of Amsterdam, was founded by Abraham Kuyper. He also served as a professor there. He led a major political party for four decades in Holland in Netherlands he served as prime minister for 4 years he began his career as a pastor for 11 years he was a pastor first in a small church in uh, a rural church in best then in utrecht and finally in amsterdam he co-founded a religious denomination that broke away from what they felt were in fact uh, aspects of the church that were drifting from the truth. He did a lot, and in every aspect of his life, he saw it as coming under the rule of Christ. So that's one option to say, Christians, yeah, we don't do politics. That's, that's secular. That's worldly stuff. I think we would reject that. Another approach is to say, um, the church is the kingdom of God, and that is the kingdom of man. And so it is not that we don't have anything to do with them, but the church should be the focus of our energies. That, in fact, this is what we are called to do. Another option is, in fact, to say, yes, we will be involved in politics and sort of blend Christian faith with ideological thinking. Um, The problem with this view is that rather than seeing an ideology as religious, which we will see in a few moments, they see it as neutral. It's almost as though you have a a kind of batter that has no flavor to it, and it is the Christian who adds the flavor to the batter. And so it is a mixture of the Christian faith and secular politics, if you wish. Others might say that there are other options, but I stop here because I think this is what most, if many Christians certainly, have chosen one of these three options. I think there is a better way. That's what I hope to show as we go through this series. For the next four weeks, at least, I want us to consider the issue of the Christian, individually, and the church, communally, and politics. And to begin this study, I want to propose some ideas that will serve as sort of the backdrop, the background to informing a biblical view of what it means to be a Christian in a political society. What are our responsibilities as God's people living in this country in 2020? In dealing with politics, at least in the modern world, I want to approach the matter in terms of ideology. What is ideology? What is an ideology? Well, it's actually sort of the third step of uh, progression, which begins with idea, which is a thought, a dream, a value. go back to Plato for this. The second step is ideal, in which the idea becomes tangible. It becomes real. The third step is ideology, where this idea and this ideal, in fact, are applied practically to a world or a life situation. If you Google ideology, you'll find Among other things, ideology is a set of shared beliefs within a group, such as a nation or a social class. This body of beliefs influence the way uh, individuals think, act, and view the world. Another thing you'll find is a system of ideas uh, and ideals, interesting, especially one which forms the basis of economic or political theory and policy. And finally, you find liberalism, conservatism, libertarianism, and populism are the four main or four most common ideologies in the United States. I would add nationalism with populism, and I would also add socialism. But for our purposes in this study, ideology refers to a set of political beliefs which shape the way people view the world, how they think, and more importantly, how they act. Let's look at ideologies biblically. And here I'm following the lead of David Koizos in his uh, just been re-released book called Political Visions and Illusions. I would submit to you that modern ideologies are manifestations of an ancient phenomenon that in the scripture is referred to as idolatry. I'll flesh this out as we go along. Like idolatries in the Bible, every ideology is based on taking some aspect of creation, the totality of God's creation, and then raising it above creation and making creation and everything in creation serve that particular God, if you wish. The basic premise is that this idol has the capacity to save us from some real or perceived evil in the world. But I think we need to stop and and back up a bit and ask ourselves, what is idolatry? Dick Kyes in his chapter, The Idol Factory, says, As modern people, we usually think of an idol as an animal or human figure made of stone or wood. We see it as an object for religious devotion or magical power for pre-modern people who might prostrate themselves on the ground before it. So, in our text, when John says, keep yourselves from idols, our modern mind would tend us to think that John is writing about, you know, people back in the first century, and they have these objects made of wood or, or stone that, that they are worshiping, and, and John says, you need to stop doing that. I don't know if you remember, it's been less than a year, but when we studied 1 John... We, we notice several things. First of all, this is the first time when he refers to them as dear children that he has done so since the middle of the book. And so as he closes the book, he is being quite tender, quite affectionate with them, and he tells them, keep yourselves from idols. But why does he say this? It's the first time, it's the only time in the entire book that he's mentioned idols. And here he does at the end. It's almost, if you wish, sort of a mic drop that has no context or seemingly no context in the book. Well, in chapter 2, and it sort of goes through the rest of the book, John presents three tests to see whether or not a person is, in fact, a genuine follower of Jesus. You may remember this. The moral test, which is obedience. The social test, which is love. And then thirdly, the doctrinal test, which is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before, when we went through it, I think we would prefer that he started with doctrinal. In fact, he puts it at the end. But there's not a word about idols. So why does he end the book the way that he does? Well, the second test is love. And idolatry is not simply turning from the truth. It is loving someone other than God. And the test of whether or not someone is a follower of Jesus is whether or not they love God and whether or not they love the brothers. So that's why John ends the way that he does. Second test is love. And if you follow idols, then you are committing, in Old Testament language, adultery. You are married to God, you are his people, and instead you are giving your love and your affection to something else. Um, in the same book that Dick Kies wrote in uh, we find for followers of Jesus Christ breaking with idols and living in the truth are finally not a test of orthodoxy but of love that is, abandoning idols is not a question of oh I'm, I'm following right doctrine it is a question of love that is why idolatry is worse than apostasy it is adultery love is the final expression of truth just as loyalty to truth is the vital test of love See, idolatry is not only dealing with images. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, and then we might almost say parenthetically, such a man is an idolater. Okay? So what Paul is saying is, To be immoral is to be an idolater. To be impure is to be an idolater. To be a greedy person is to be an idolater. So idolatry is um, connected to actions and attitudes. Uh, John Calvin wrote in the Institutes that the human heart is a factory of idols, a perpetual factory of idols. To speak of an idol in the biblical sense, assume that there is, in fact, a true God. The idol is the counterfeit. At the most basic level, idols are what we make out of evidence for God within ourselves and the world because we don't want to face God. So we put something in between us and God and we inflate it so we don't actually have to look at God or be confronted by God and his holiness. It is something within creation that functions as a substitute for the true God. I think we could make the case that In the modern world, the church has weakened the case for idolatry. The world has as well, maybe seeing it as an obsession. It doesn't help that we have shows like American Idol making it a good thing, and the church has seemingly not said a word about this. But for Christians, there are two dangers that come into play. First of all, the most comprehensive description of unbelief in the Bible is idolatry. So, if you sort of weaken idolatry, you also weaken down the concept of unbelief. And secondly, if we don't recognize the nature of idolatry, then we will not see it when it sneaks into our lives and into the life of the church. Let's go back to the beginning. When God created Adam, He gave him two responsibilities. He was to live out what it meant to be a human being made in the image of God in two directions. First of all, downward, he was to have dominion over creation. Uh, He gave Adam and Eve the responsibility of taking care of the garden. There they would learn basic tasks before they would go out into the world and have dominion. Not as owners, But as stewards, this is God's world, as we sang earlier, this is my father's world. Adam and Eve were to take care of God's world. But the second mandate for man is upward. They are to trust God. They are to obey God. They obey God by doing what he says and having dominion over creation. Adam and Eve decided to rebel. We're told this in Genesis 3. And now the picture has changed. They still bear the image of God. We still still bear the image of God. But now we are ruined, if you wish. We are twisted. We are bent. And we live in a twisted and bent world. The world has become an insecure and a very dangerous place. So we still have those two aspects, the downward and the upward. But now they're twisted. So instead of dominion, we have domination. As much as to say, no, this is my world. This is our world. Having turned away from God who offers reconciliation through grace, people, in fact, become a law to themselves. And they want a certain degree of security. And how can I have security? I must dominate. I must be in charge. So instead of dominion, domination. What about trust? Instead of trust, it becomes over-dependence. People no longer trust in God, so they trust in anything or everything else. They still want security. Um, It's not done through control. That's domination. But they want to find meaning. They want to find legitimacy, coherence to their lives. This leads us to see that that idols usually come in pairs. You You have... Trust and dominion, and now it's domination and over-dependence, these, these two aspects of humanity. This is what idols come in the form of as well. We have nearby idols. This is from Dick Kai's, Idols that are close by, that's dominion, do, domination here. And we have the faraway idols. And by the way, this is the counterfeit of God who is eminent, who is transcendent. So idols are a counterfeit God. They try to emulate, if you wish, but ultimately to counterfeit God. So we have idols that are here to get us through the day, moment by moment, good luck charms, if you wish. But then we have those faraway idols as well. Those that are they're less they're less accessible, but they sort of give us the meaning to life. It's sort of the big picture kind of idol versus the little picture kind of idol. The issue isn't spatial. The issue is psychological. But in both cases, what do they present? What do they offer? Security. The overarching narrative gives me a sense of security. I know where history is going. And then the things that get me through the day, those give me security as well. This is one way of looking at idolatry. Let me suggest another way of looking at idolatry. You see, idols seek to counterfeit God. They try to, well, we put them in the place of God in our lives. They try to emulate God, they try to imitate God. And one of the ways they do this is they tell a different story. In the scripture, God reveals himself by telling us a story, there's a narrative. That's what idols seek to do as well. I mentioned earlier that if you look on the internet about ideology, uh, I'm sorry about ideologies. One says ideology is a set of shared beliefs, a body of beliefs. Another one says a system of ideas and ideals. But if we accept that idols are I'm sorry, ideologies are in fact idols, and they're trying to present a counterfeit view of God or form of God. We need to remember that God did not reveal himself as a system of beliefs, did he? He did not present himself as shared ideals or ideas. He, in fact, revealed himself in a narrative. The scripture is, in fact, a narrative. And the narrative consists of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. If you wish to tell us where it's all headed... I would argue that each ideology, as an idol, does the same thing. It has a narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And if you were to talk to someone who's a poli-sci major, or someone who teaches political science, or those who are involved in politics, they would say, no, 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 no. An ideology is a system of, of beliefs, of principles, of ideals. The story that stories are for children, but the reality is God has revealed Himself in a narrative, and ideologies do the same thing. So, what do ideologies tell us about the story? Well, the first part of the biblical narrative is creation. Some years ago, six years to be precise, we did a series on creation, and something I pointed out is that we need to understand two things when we talk about creation. First of all. The doctrine of creation is not about the nature of creation but about the God who creates so when we talk about creation, we should in fact be talking about the creator that presents a real problem for ideologies because after all they are idols okay secondly, that the doctrine of creation is not about origin but about the purpose of creation so Christians get involved in you know is it evolution is it sixty days is it old earth all these different things they' like you're missing the point, okay? The point is, where is it all headed? It's about the creator and his intent, his purpose for his creation. When we talk about the story or stories that various ideologies tell us about creation, we're not simply talking about origin. Oh, whoa, we can't believe this ideology because they believe in evolution. No, no, but having said that, the one thing I find interesting is that ideologies tend to have what I would call a very low view of creation. That is, they deny the goodness of creation. They have a distorted uh, view of creation. Now they call it nature, which is governed by rules as they see it. So no story, it's you know, governed by principles. Okay. And they see the world as belonging to humanity. That's domination. Not dominion, as it belongs to God and we are stewards. Okay. They misunderstand the character of the world in a rather basic and fundamental way. We will come back to this later in the series. But I would just say in in passing, you know when people talk about global warming and climate change and all this. No one says this directly, I don't think. But they're not it's not because they care about creation. It's it's about us. We're gonna go extinct. The water levels are gonna come up and cities are gonna be flooded, and that's gonna be a disaster. Wait a minute. What about God's creation? We are to have a love for God's creation. And I don't think you find this in any of the ideologies that people follow today. So the first part of the story is creation, and most ideologies very, very weak in that. It's the fall where most of them begin. Most of them begin their narrative with the fall. And when we looked at, we did a series on money, I I noticed that many Christians who write about what is a, a biblical view of money didn't begin in Eden, they began after the fall, in a fallen world. And no, the first part of the story is God's creation. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. They begin their narrative with the fall Because the ideology is going to redeem us from the fall. Something went horribly wrong, and now the ideology is, in fact, going to save us. It is the solution to the problem. Um, What we find in our country today, and I think some people may be confused by um, the anger and the hatred against figures or structures of the past. Um, Oz Guinness, our series on theology of time, Today, a key way in which modern people distort the past is through victimhood and hate. <laughs> Ideologies may, in fact, say the reason we're in the mess we are today is because of this thing, this structure, this event that happened in the past. You might say it's patriarchy, for example. I'll pick one particular thing, and it's, it's not that I'm picking on them, but it, it helps because they have a very specific date for the fall, 1619. I don't know if you're familiar with the 1619 project. This is when apparently the first African slave was brought to what we now call the United States. Um, Slaves had been brought to the Americas more than 100 years before that, but we're talking about the United States. So if you wish, the fall of the United States happened when slaves were brought in 1619. Um, According, this is from the New York Times Magazine, which has sponsored this project. Um, It aims to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the United States national narrative. In other words, here's our ideological narrative, and it begins in 1619 when things went horribly, horribly wrong. That's the fall. And now the ideology is going to fix that. It's going to redeem us from this fallen world. It is interesting that the same year that the 1619 project came out, various historians spoke out against it. Five leading American historians uh, sent a letter to the New York Times uh, expressing objections to the framing of the project and accusing the authors of, quote, a displacement of historical understanding by ideology. Absolutely. Because they're telling a story which begins with the fall. And the fall happened in 1619. Now let me be clear, slavery is wrong. And I will not in fact deny that many of the problems we have today are the results of actions and actors in the past. But that's not the fall, okay? The fall happened in Genesis 3, not in 1619. Things were not wonderful before those events or before those individuals lived. cannot embrace 1619 as the fall of humanity or certainly the fall of American society but why do people do that well because of the third step in the story we have creation we have fall and then we have redemption in a word ideologies promise salvation that is deliverance from evil which came with that fall that happened at some point in the past The Bible is a record of God's intervention in human history. He intervenes to save his people. Ideologies embody a pseudo-redemptive narrative that competes with the biblical story. So each ideology is based on a specific soteriology, technical word which means a doctrine of salvation. It's a worked out theory. In which there is deliverance from some fundamental evil. There's something that went bare, re- really wrong in the past. And that's why everything is so messed up now. And if we can just fix this. Then everything will be fine. If salvation is always from something that is evil. The question is. What is evil? And what is the source of evil? And again the ideologies say. Here we will tell you what in fact is evil. Patriarchy for example slavery. Again I will not deny the evils of these situations, but to see them as the evil that we need to be saved from is merely to feed into the redemptive story of these ideological narratives. So if in fact this ideology promises salvation and we get saved, what then? Well this is the fourth part of the story, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That is when the eternal state begins, when the Lord Jesus returns, the telos, what this is all headed toward. In 1992, and I remember when the book came out, because I was really puzzled by the title, a book came out entitled The End of History, and by the way, I was two years away from getting my PhD in history, so it was a little disturbing. The End of History and the Last Man. It's written by Francis Fukuyama. It's a book of political philosophy in which the author argues that with the ascendancy of Western liberal democracy, which occurred during the Cold War, or after the Cold War, and then the Soviet Union had dissolved, that humanity had, quote, not just the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution, and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. We've reached paradise. Here we have, in fact, we've reached the end of history. This is what history is all about, and now we have reached this point. Well, Jacques Derrida, sort of the father of modern deconstructionism, said, this is essentially a Christian eschatology. Well, it's not Christian, but it is an eschatology. It's about the consummation. This is what it's been all about. Um, by the way, um, Fukuyama was a neocon. Um, he sort of left that, but uh, liberal democracy was his thing, and since it had, quote-unquote, won the day, he saw it as the end of history. He's not the first person, by the way, who spoke of that. Uh, Karl Marx did as well. He saw a point in the future in which everything would just sort of you know wrap up, and we would sort of... I guess in human terms, we'd enter the eternal state. Everything would just be wonderful from then on. Well, how do we achieve that? Well, one of the things we find with ideologies, which as Christians that we should find really disturbing, is that goals replace principles. The followers of an ideology tell a story, a redemptive story, in which at the end everything will be well. It will be brought about by heroic human efforts and we will have in fact achieved paradise. Well, if you bring redemption and consummation together, so you go through the process of redemption to bring us to this end of history, one finds that the goals supersede the principles. In other words, The end is the all-important thing. And this is where it gets really strange because for some, they would say, we want a just state, we want a place, we want a time in human history when there will be justice. To achieve that, we might have to do unjust things, but that's because that's our goal. So it's, it's a case of the end justifies the means. Christians, we should really have a problem with this. Um, I mean, isn't Micah who tells us that one must act justly and love God and walk humbly with your God? Act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. The end can never justify the means because you don't know what the end is. Biblically, we do. We know that the Lord Jesus will return. But for ideologies, they have no idea. And that's why something that starts out with a wonderful story, this is what we're going to bring about, ends up in chaos and nihilism, as we see in various cities around our country today. Human beings are by nature religious. Ideologies are by nature idolatrous slash religious. So when people buy into ideologies, they are acting based on their religious tendencies. We're made in the image of God. That's just the way we are. And so if you would talk to many people who hold to these uh, ideologies, let's say a Marxist, and you say, oh, you're a religious person. They say, I absolutely am not. I'm a political person. Well, ideologies are by nature religious. The nature of human beings can be understood by three basic rules we find in scripture. The first is that everyone serves a God of some sort. Everyone does. Everyone serves a God. Either the true God or an idol. Secondly, everyone is transformed into the image of the God they serve. There's a passage in Psalm 115, and then it's repeated somewhat in Psalm 135, Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them and so will all who trust in them. When a person, in fact, embraces an idolatry that we would call ideology, they become like that idol. The third thing that we see is that people structure society in their own image. So having embraced an idol, they then seek to reshape the society, the people around them, in the image of that idol. ideologies are by nature idolatrous so at this point some of you may be wondering Damon are you saying that as a Christian a follower of Jesus I cannot be liberal or I cannot be a liberal or I cannot be a conservative can't be a populist or nationalist libertarian a socialist not at all I am not saying that one of the keys to approaching the various ideologies is to understand the appeal of the stories that they tell, including the fact that they get some things right. I don't know that if you can prove this. I don't think that something can be completely wrong. It has to have aspects of it that, is, that are right. An ancient example might help. The Egyptians worshiped the sun god, Ra. And to some extent, such worship is comprehensible. The sun is the source of the brightest light accessible here on earth. Without the sun, life would be impossible. The yearly cycles, in terms of agriculture, we have sowing, germination, growth, and harvest are dependent upon the sun. The earth revolves around the sun. A decrease in exposure to the sun, the shortening of days brings on winter with cold or colder temperatures and the relative absence of vegetation. In short, we cannot exaggerate the sun's significance for our existence. We should appreciate its many benefits. But the sun is a creature brought into being and sustained by God himself. We are not to mistake the sun, a creature, for the creator. And this is where sun worshipers fall into error. Yes, they are right. The sun is important. Without the sun, you can't have the cycle of agriculture. The earth goes around the sun. All the aspects that are important. But we are not to worship the sun. In the same way, when confronted by ideologies, we must assume that there is some creational good in them. We'll see this, I think, in a couple weeks uh, in this series. Liberals, for example, have properly understood that there is a legitimate sphere of individual responsibility in which other individuals and communities ought not to interfere. It is liberals who brought out, where the church should have, the importance of human rights. That, in fact, individuals are to be treated with respect. Conservatives have rightly called our attention to the significance of tradition, the need to maintain historical community or continuity. And when we contemplate or we implement change, we need to be very careful. We need to consider the past. Nationalists understand the value of solidarity among people sharing citizenship. Socialists have, in fact, alerted us to the role played by economic class in influencing the way we think and act politically, and on it goes. But where ideologies go wrong is when they elevate what they get right, above the rest of creation, and it becomes the focal point of the story. It becomes the redemptive story that people must embrace. And in the process, you have idolaters who begin to fight each other because they tell different stories. Liberals against conservatives, actually liberals against liberals and conservatives against conservatives. They have some things in common. But what they elevate to the highest position becomes quite different. It may be that the good in a certain ideology, a fragment or fragments of truth, is what lures or seduces followers of Jesus down the wrong path. Consider, for example, what happened in Nazi Germany when the Lutheran Church, by and large, embraced National Socialism. You say, how could that happen? But there were certain aspects that in fact were good. And it is these fragments that I think seduce people that lure followers of Jesus down the wrong path. Ideologies may have some good, but they tell the wrong story. They tell the wrong story. Their narrative is wrong. What we find in God's revelation of himself is creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. This is the true story. All other stories are imitations. They are idols. They seek to counterfeit the true story. And each ideology does this. Here at the end of this first sermon in the series, I would tell you that as followers of Jesus, we need to remember who we are and to whom we belong. We need to remember that we belong to Jesus First and last And that the church Not the state is the body of Christ And that God has revealed himself In the story Of creation, fall, redemption And consummation All other stories are counterfeit They lead to idolatry They lead us astray And John said at the end of his letter, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a world that tends to speak in abstractions, theories, principles stories or narratives are seen as almost childish but the reality is you have revealed yourself in scripture that you have created the world to sustain it, mankind rebelled through Israel and finally your son you brought redemption and one day we will be with you, the purpose the goal of it all is that your people would be with you eternally. But, there are other stories being told. Often enough, not as stories, but as systems. As intellectual paradigms, intellectual patterns, theories. In fact, they are simply telling a different story. They get some things right, and as such have seduced your people in the past, perhaps even in the present. As we begin this series, Father, as your people, may we see that ideologies, while not inherently wrong, can in fact become a form of idolatry. And if we embrace them, then we embrace a totally different story than what we find in scripture. And then we'll have to make a choice. Will we follow you or will we follow the ideology? Will we worship you or the idol? We are easily led astray. I pray that by your spirit you would protect us. Even Jesus spoke, he said that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. May your spirit give us clear thinking. In a world of seeming chaos, contentiousness, hatred, nihilism, may we remember who we are and to whom we belong. I thank you for bringing us together today I ask that your spirit and your grace Would be with us Today and through the rest of this week Above all we thank you for loving us And proving that love By sending your son the Lord Jesus We pray this through Jesus And in his name Amen